Hello and welcome to a surefire. Hello and welcome to a surefire failure edition of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brent Mosier and Travis Santana, and today we'll be reviewing 1967's The Producers. We'll jump into five point inspection with Pump Up the Volume, On Broadway, The Overture, Timeless, and Jumpstart. But before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. Hey man, I oh oh wow! You went ahead and, and got the new desks for the office. That thing looks kind of expensive, but it looks really nice. Oh yeah, you know I decided to take the plunge. Uh, actually, got a guy coming out next week to put down some hardwood flooring in here. Anyways, uh, what's up, man? Wasn't sure if uh, you had any plans this weekend, but me and the family were uh, we're gonna have a little cookout on Saturday. Gonna break open a couple Coronas. I uh, wasn't sure if you were interested in stopping by. Oh, man, I'm all about family, but uh, to be honest, I'm swamped with the auditions for the Hollywood Chop Shop commercial. Wait, why? We auditioned like 25 people last week. I, I thought we agreed on the little redheaded kid. Eh, you know, he was good, but then I started thinking, as valuable as the kid demographic is, I think senior citizens might be even more lucrative. Lucrative? You really think a commercial is, is really going to build that kind of customer base? Uh, maybe, but, uh, I'm talking about audition fees. See, the thing is, these parents bringing in their kids for auditions, I'm, I'm charging them 20 bucks a pop. Whoa, and, whoa, we're charging people to audition? I, I didn't agree to that. Well, let, let me finish. The, these parents with these kids, you know, they're going to chase the Hollywood dream. They'll pay 20 bucks for that all day, all day long. Because they hope their kid will be a star, but... I was visiting my granny at the nursing home, and you know what I realized? That you're an incredibly dishonest man? Well, I realized that these geriatrics, they're clinging on to the last remaining promise their life once had. And, well, hell, they'd pay at least 50 bucks for one last chance at the spotlight. I told granny I'd cut her in for 20% of the profit. <laughs> I, 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 I'm pretty sure this is illegal, man. I, 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 you you got to get the money back. All of it. Well, all of it. I already bought the desk, so... You, you've already spent some of the money? Oh, God, I'm, I'm hysterical! I'm, I'm getting the hysterics! I'm, I'm hysterical! I can't stop when I get like this! I can't stop! I'm hysterical! Well, calm down, amigo. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll hold off on the old folks' plan. Uh, I actually know this guy, Max, who ran something similar. Let's review the producers and see how he made out. A down-and-out Broadway producer latches on to a harebrained scheme to swindle a batch of wealthy elderly women out of a piece of their fortunes in return for a share in his latest disaster. I mean masterpiece. Partnered with his timid accountant, the two must uncover the worst play ever written, produce it with unimaginably bad talent, and reap the rewards of closing the performance just after one night. Can the duo find a surefire dud, or will they succeed, and in the process, fail in spite of themselves? Alrighty, Travis, before we get into five points, I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 1967's The Producers. Well, I don't 
know how much it annoys you or it annoys the audience when I uh, go back into Hollywood chop shop lore. <laughs> but I'm going to do just that for a moment. That's us going into a flashback here, right? Yeah. It needs a little context, you know? So <laughs> I think this is the second oldest movie we've reviewed. Uh, I'm on the record as hating old movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we reviewed The Professionals. Uh, check that out if you haven't, audience. I was hoping for a similar experience as that, which is I was pleasantly – I'll go so far as to say in love with The Professionals. Mm-hmm. I was hoping the producers would kind of produce the same feeling. And Brett, it did not. Okay. What about you? Um. So this is not the first time I have watched this film. Um, it has been a long time since I've watched it. And going back, it's definitely one of those, I don't know how well this movie has aged, and we'll get into that, especially when I'm looking through it with a critical eye. Uh, there are still moments in this movie where I laughed out loud, though. And uh, one part we will definitely get to in five points. I mean, I was damn near in tears laughing. Um, so I think it's... It's not to to get ahead of ourselves with how you know our, our final critiques of it and all that, but I think it's a it's definitely one of those movies that has some YouTube worthy clips that you should definitely watch. Uh, but overall, it's it's definitely there's a lot of flaws in this movie. There's it's very rough around the edges, and it just has some very shining gems in the, in that roughness is is what I'll say. Well, and generally, and, and we can get into the specifics and the five points, but it feels to me uh, that Mel Brooks wanted to make springtime for Hitler. Like that was the main thrust of why he wanted to do this project. And then realized if I'm putting this play into a movie, I need to surround it with an actual movie. And I think that's where the movie falls short, everything outside of the play. So here's what we're going to do as a perfect transition into five points. Let's go ahead and start with on Broadway, because I think what you're saying fits very well into that. And then we'll jump into some of the other points. But um, so I felt the same thing in watching this movie, like with a more critical lens and, and kind of going through it, having a lot more cinematic experience and all that. Like the movie feels like it is shot or almost staged like a theatrical play. Um, and some of my evidence of that is like, I mean, there's very few settings in this movie. I think I counted six. Um, I might've missed some, but essentially there's the, the opening apartment, which is almost 20 minutes of an hour and a half long movie. It's just the opening apartment. There yes, is. And that, Oh <clears throat> yeah. Not to spoil my five point, but that's what jumpstart is about. Yeah. The, uh, there's a park montage, essentially, um, where it's Max kind of basically convincing Leo to, to throw his, you know, uh, what is it, conscience to the wind and kind of become a schlub with him. There is the office, which is essentially, I think, the renovated apartment. I mean, it might be a different place, but that's it. There is the, oh, I guess there's seven. I'm sorry. There's the theater, there's the court, the prison, and then I forgot there's the, the director's um flat so there's there's only seven seven scenes in this entire movie um i well, thought let me say not only that but but they're mostly interiors and mm -hmm. you could believe that this was just like a, a stage production where 
the office became the upgraded office and then later became the director's apartment. Like, it's not like seven locations shot throughout the world. It doesn't feel mm. that way at all. Yep. Um, Zero's performance, I also thought the way that he shouted and then just throughout the throughout the movie, it very much... I actually did a lot of research on this movie afterward and we're kind of going to uh, almost reverse engineer on Broadway because I'm like, the way he performed, I'm like, I guarantee you that this guy was a like a, a stage performer and he was also an actor looked it up completely true like he's known for like his role in fiddler on the roof um and then just again ultimately the way that it was shot felt very much like a broadway um performance or like a stage performance so i went back and did some research and so in writing this uh, mel brooks had more a history in stagecraft right uh i don't know if he ever did anything broadway before this but did a bunch of stage stuff this was his first movie um, when he wrote Springtime for Hitler, or I'm sorry, the producers, he actually wrote it not knowing if it was going to be a stage performance or a movie, and then ultimately decided to make it a movie instead because he would have be able to do a couple other set pieces. He could do a couple other settings, which he did not take that nearly as far as he wanted to. Because um, again, we just said there's seven there's seven places and they're not that much different. Um, and then lastly, best part, this was actually Mel Brooks's first movie he directed. <laughs> so, and basically it was, they only had, he had a hard time getting anybody, studios, to look at this movie. So to help with the budget, he basically decided that he would direct it because it would be more cost effective. And I feel like you can tell that this was the first time he's directed a movie because again i think he caters very much to what he knew which was again stagecraft and i don't think you see a lot of dynamic like theatrical shots even for a movie from 1967 you know which to bring it back to the professionals for just a moment prior to seeing that movie i would not have expected any sort of real directorial flourish or cinematic filmmaking because i had just assumed that films this old and this may sound uneducated for all you cinephiles out there but i didn't think that they were really capable of making those kind of films yet mm -hmm. the professionals proved me wrong but yes this movie feels very amateurish and again, uh, definitely a, a stage play mind, both behind the camera and in front of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely agree. So it is one of those just picking up on it. So I will say, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this in our trilogy wrap up, um, which will come out after the next movie uh, we review. But I just do think it is hysterical that we somehow accidentally in this trilogy managed to pick our first movie was Mulholland Drive, which was a movie that was made for TV and converted into a movie. And then we watched The Producers, which was a basically a movie made for the stage that was converted into a movie. So <laughs> of the two of our meta movies, neither of them were actually designed as movies first. <laughs> yeah, no, that is interesting to think about. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with our, our third movie, which I think will be revealed at the end of the podcast. Um, so with that said, uh, I don't have a whole lot more for Broadway other than the fact that I thought it was interesting just to see that this film essentially and it feels that way. I mean, it feels very, like you said, amateurish. You can tell this is Mel Brooks's first time and doing a little research. Apparently, he got very frustrated with the the process of making a movie and like the length of time it takes versus, I think, some of the more. Uh, I think he had some experience with TV um, and definitely had experience with theater and just ultimately was not, you know, he had there was a very broad learning curve for him directing this movie. And I, I definitely think you can see that because 
even some of the the comedy i feel like a lot of punches were, were pulled and i think you could have done a lot more with the camera um that just wasn't done because he just didn't have the experience yeah 100 percent agreed and, and i think the the two five points that i have uh jump start and pump up the volume if you want to elaborate on specifics of that kind of Broadway touch, I think it's going to play there. So can I get into jumpstart for just a moment? Yeah, let's do it. So it's exactly what you said with, uh, was it zero postel? Is that his name? I, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. A theme of the Hollywood Chop Shop is we always talk about runtime, and the runtime of this movie is trim and tight. But as you mentioned earlier, it's weird that it spends almost a quarter of it on that opening scene. And any hope that I had of enjoying this movie at a high level was lost in that opening because that opening frankly, gets on my nerves. Everything is so overacted. Uh, Zero Postel is just yelling the whole time, just physical comedy. Like, I don't need 10 minutes of him seducing old women for me to get the point that, hey, this is how he funds his meager existence. Yeah. Well, and I then Gene Wilder comes in, and I've never seen Gene Wilder so over the top, or maybe I've seen him over the top, but it was actually entertaining. Whereas this movie, I'm just like, it feels like he's trying to match the energy of his co-star. And it's just a manic performance from both leads in that opening. And it really starts the movie out on a, a sour note for me. Yeah. Well, and again, it goes back to on a stage performance, you would need to be that loud and that robust. And you're, you know, you have to do the overacting again. And very much so, like that was what mel brooks was familiar with so that was essentially what he had them do and yeah to your you know point I, I don't think it translates well into the movie because i thought the same thing i'm like i'm over zero screaming max screaming into the camera i'm like and i don't know if it's just you needed to change audio levels or what but at a certain point like it's it's almost like when i watch movies at home sometimes like whenever the sound effects or anything happen or the music i have to like i actively hold the the audio remote in my hand because i have to turn the shit down because it gets so loud and then i turn it back up when it comes down to dialogue i just i've never understood why they can't match that audio better or what the purpose is but like that's what was happening with this movie but it was during dialogue i was having to turn it down because i'm like it's just he's yelling so fucking loud and it's like there's no need for it right it's weird. You described my exact experience watching this movie because, yeah, I watched it with the remote in my hand and I was adjusting the volume every probably 45 seconds. And, yeah, it coincided with the dialogue, which normally it's, hey, there's about to be an explosion. I need to turn it down. You know, the explosion is the performance is here <laughs> and, and not in a good way. Yeah. I will also say we've always said another thing in our 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 podcast is you never want to watch a movie and it reminds you of something that that's been done better. And I realized the movie I'm about to mention is years, years, years afterward. But did you not get slight and I'll say slight, slight Gustav vibes from Max at the very beginning when you're he's, you know, he's having relationships with all these older women and all that. All it made me think of was like, oh, this is kind of like Grand Budapest Hotel, which we also reviewed. Only I liked how they portrayed Gustav doing it way more than I liked the way they portrayed Max. <laughs> like, it makes so much more sense the way that it's portrayed in Grand Budapest Hotel than it does here. Like, it's somehow almost the exact same action and the exact same 
you know, the reasoning behind it, their motivation for doing it. But for some reason, when Gustav does it in Grand Budapest Hotel, I'm like, oh, no, it's kind of endearing. Like he's, you know, he's a selfish asshole, but they pretty much describe like, you know, it's a service he's providing to these women. And, you know, at the same time, it's, it's you know, fluffing his ego. Whereas Max just comes off as a giant fucking asshole, like an obnoxious dick about the whole thing. Right. Yeah, it doesn't feel like the real world. Gustav, yeah, he's not charming at all. Yeah, Gustav, I believe that the old lady he entertains, they all enjoy it. Like, they mm. all, I believe that they love spending the last years of their life with this man. Whereas Max, yeah, I mean, he's in a, a restaurant pouring wine into a waiter's, you know, apron. He's just obnoxious at all times. I, I, I can't imagine. As I get older, I have less patience for everything. I mm -hmm. can't imagine being 80 years old and parading around with Max. Right. And yeah, that's really the same thing as, as pump up the volume. It's just – and I will say the back end of the movie – I feel like they actually start to perform in more of a cinematic way, uh, barely. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know if I just hated the opening so much. And I'll be honest, after that opening, Brett, I turned the movie off. I finished it in two settings again um, <laughs> because that opening just turned me off so much. I was mm -hmm. like, it has poisoned my opinion of this movie if I continue to watch it in one sitting. So I think I benefited from – basically stopping after the the basic plot is established mm -hmm. i think it allowed me to enjoy the back end a little bit more did you did you think it got any more subtle as it went on yeah and i would totally agree with that i i think that the the beginning is completely over the top and even to the point where it might be completely tonally different than the rest of the movie because it is just set in that you know shady apartment and it is just there's so much of Max just yelling and berating Leo, and you're just like, it does. It's like we're establishing that Max is a is not a good person, right? He's a total piece of shit human being. But at the same time, there's no redeeming qualities to him either. So it's just you're basically just 20 minutes of watching your protagonist be just an obnoxious person that you don't want to continue being around. So I can totally understand where you would need to take a break after that, take a breather and then come back and be able to finish the movie. Um, because it is just for that reason. It is, he's just so, so over the top obnoxious in that first 20 minutes. Yeah. I'm thankful that that was not completely indicative of what was to come, but yeah, I think that covered my five points. I'm really curious about Timeless and the Overture. Do you want to go either direction there? So we'll save the Overture for last. Timeless is just one of those, uh, you know, it's always fun to me to go back and watch older movies and see, especially comedies, to see how they hold up um, and to, to modern audiences and stuff like that. Because, not to spoil anything, but this has a pretty high rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um so it's one of those where I wonder, like, some of the jokes that are made, do they still stand up um, to, to today's standards? And, stuff like, and you know, Ula, the, the receptionist, basically just being there for, for Max to gawk at with the, you know, having her dance in the bikini and she doesn't add any more value to it. Um, it was definitely one of well, those. Can I stop you one second? Mm hmm. That was the most problematic element of the movie because. It's not just her dancing in the office. She asks, hey, should we go to the motel? Mm -hmm. 
So, like, it's pretty evident that he's also fucking this secretary. Right. No, I, so I totally agree. office entertainment purely, which, I mean, on its own would be a little bit weird and uh, you'd be canceled. But, like, the movie puts it right out there. Like, this is why she has the job. Well, and it's interesting because I think, like, you know, we talk about real life and stuff like that. And to me, like, that is a real life situation is somebody taking advantage of a woman like that. But it is interesting in today's cinema. I don't think, and I could be completely wrong in this, but I don't feel like you see men like scoundrel men that are just supposed to be like unworthy, just completely dirtbags that you don't want to be associated with. They really don't portray them that like blunt in today's cinema as they did again in 1967, where it's just very plain where like every time she walks away, you have both Max and Leo just wide eyed, gaping mouth, you know, watching her walk away where like you can tell that they are just like gawking over her. The implication that Max is, you know, having sex with her um, and then just using her you know, as, as I can do around the office where she plays no benefit other than the fact that, you know, when Max wants to to look at her, then, you know, basically putting on the music and, and treating her like an animal. I you just you don't see that where they're that upfront about someone being. I like, mean, unless that's what the movie is about. I'm thinking like something like Bombshell that came out like within the last two years. Well, and to like, that point, though, sexual harassment is the focus. Oh, of the movie, right. You're, you're not saying to see it that over. Yeah. Sexual harassment. I think the focus of the movie is just how terrible, you know, I don't which is this is what I think is interesting about this movie is the whole thing is supposed to be satire. And, mo you know, the, the theme is Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And I'm like, you already kind of have that as your your villain. But I guess the only way you need two schmucks to be the vehicle in order for that to be produced because no upstanding person is going to do it. But it is, it's one of those things where like your protagonists are not good people, this movie. And honestly, by the end of the movie, they don't redeem themselves either. They're still like, they might actually be even worse than what they were at the beginning of the movie, because now they've kind of embraced who they are and they're now trying to swindle people in prison. Right. Right, yeah, they've kind of perfected their scheme, and one can imagine that as soon as they get out of prison, they're going right back to this lifestyle. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there, there is no... Leo will not be redeemed. You know, he has now found strength in basically being a schlub. I don't even know if schlub's the right word, just being a, a total, you know, dickhead. Um, but there's that. There is also the... You know, the the over the top um, partner of Roger. What was the, the guy's name? Uh, was it Carmen? Carmen Gia? Yes. So I was just like, it's one of those I'm like, I don't know if like, are they trying to make fun of flamboyant game? And then I was trying to think like, would you have that kind of where it's like, is it how over the top of a caricature the person is? Or are they making fun of them for being? Because again, it's all about. What was the purpose? You know, what is what are they trying to say? And then later when you have Roger come out in the dress and I'm like, OK, this is definitely one of those things where in 1967, I'm sure there was shock and hysteria that, oh, my God, it's a man in a dress. And I'm like, that's just not funny in today's standards. Like even the, you know, because, again, I say it, comedy is is all about like the misdirection. So, like, it was one of those things when he was staying there. I'm like, okay, I know something I had forgotten. I'm like, I know something ridiculous. He's going to come out in something ridiculous. And I thought what was far more funny to me was um, LSD's boots 
when they kept the the shot above his hips until he does the song and then you see those ridiculous like thigh high boots that he's wearing i thought that was legitimately hysterical because i just how ridiculous the boots are but i thought that the 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 dress on roger debris was was would probably not land with today's audiences like i just i don't think anybody would find that funny by modern standards and even to this point i don't know if anybody would find it funny on old standards just because you've seen that done before i just don't know if that's a funny gag anymore yeah i think that's the problem i don't i don't find that scene funny because i i don't have a problem with a man in a dress Mm -hmm. and in terms of this movie aging well i honestly don't have a problem with carbon Gia's depiction Mm mm-hmm or the directors, uh, you know, the way he's portrayed, mm-hmm. because ultimately that's the lifestyle they want to live. Right. So you're just kind of getting a peek into what they prefer to do. And that's fine to me. Whereas the secretary depiction, it feels a little weirder because she's just an object for men to stare at. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess you could say, Hey, she took the job, but it feels more of a she's being taken advantage of, whereas the director and his assistant, they're just living their best life. Yeah, and I think that their characters as a whole aren't an issue with my I'm just them. My concern was, did you think that at the time in 1967 that they were the butt of a joke? Were they supposed to be a gag? And now today it's just kind of like, oh, no, those are just characters, because that to me is the context It's like. And I, you know, I don't know much about Mel Brooks. I'd like to think he's probably pretty open-minded. But again, was were those two caricatures supposed to be? Were we laughing at them because they were homosexuals and cross-dressing, or is it just they're kind of funny because of how over the top? Because they are, you know, again, Carmen Gia, how over the top he's structured, like the makeup and like how his cheekbones are are protruding out of him. Like, and I guess that's the question that I'm asking: like, does that kind of stuff hold up today, or is it? You know, one of those like, I don't know about this one. I think the only thing that makes it a little more difficult to judge is because. I mean, it's the reason we're reviewing this movie. It's the meta Hollywood trilogy. Mm -hmm. So it, it very much feels like Mel Brooks is talking about a life he has experienced in Hollywood. So it feels a little more specific. I think the most damning thing ultimately is it's just not funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to say, if you if you made me pick, yes, I think it was put in there for shock value because I think shock value sometimes equals laughs. And, and that's why it is depicted the way it is. And we spend so much time on it. Mm-hmm. And then just my last point in, in Timeless when I was looking at it, like, the the nazi jokes do they kind of the the satire on on nazism in germany does does it hold up um in in you know again doing research for some of the other segments and all this like it's amazing to me how maybe it shouldn't be amazing to me, but how few satirical nazi movies there are um jojo rabbit comes to mind which i think is just top notch one of my favorite movies of recent um but did did you think that the Nazi joke jokes held up? Uh, I don't know what people will think of me for saying this, but hell yes. Yeah. I thought the 
the actual play itself, I won't say it was laugh out loud funny, but I thought it was extremely clever and I enjoyed every bit of it. Yep. Well, that'll go ahead and transition us into the overture, which is essentially the play. Cause I think that's what it was. That's the part of the play we got to watch was the overture. Um, I forgot how, for to me, how funny that overture was. I, when it comes out and it's just immediately springtime for Ger- or in Germany for Hitler and then winter for Poland for Hitler in Germany. I felt really weird the next day at work when I couldn't get that song out of my head. <laughs> uh, winter for Poland and France. Um. I just think the writing of the song is hysterical when they had the the burlesque women who were supposed to represent German culture with the the pretzel woman and the beer woman. <laughs> yes. I was laughing hysterically at that. At the point, like, and I probably shouldn't have laughed at this, but the point when they're doing the high kicks and they turn into a swastika, I just, I couldn't, I was laughing so hard because I'm like, it's just so over the top ridiculous just making fun of the the nazi party i'm like i legit I'm like the whole movie was worth getting to the overture because again i you might not have left out but i was dying i was laughing at the overture and like i said that's why i get to that youtube thing like it is i don't know if you need the rest of the movie of context to get to that part but i the, don't believe you yeah do. the overture is to me it is just so over the top funny and then even when we get into some of the performance with lsd like i didn't think he was as funny as the overture but it, you know still was pretty good with you know the oh man what are we doing here like it's just so ridiculous the portrayal of hitler and like I just love to see people make fun of Hitler. I don't think they we do it enough, you know? So I, uh, yeah, th- that's all. I just wanted to make sure that we we brought up the actual overture because to me it is the shining gem of this entire movie. Is- well, even the set design, <laughs> I was so impressed when the background changes, like those pillars become the cannons on like a battleship yeah. and then the Nazi flags drop. Like, I could absolutely tell that Mel Brooks, his true background was Broadway at this point, because that was just great set design. (laughs) And even when the whole time they're panning to the audience and just the audience's reaction, I'm like, and I think that's probably what helps part of it to where it doesn't feel real is you're just watching the audience in horror watching this play like what is going on like for starters who buys tickets to a play called springtime and hitler right (laughs) and then just to go to it like i said it was just i i absolutely absolutely enjoyed the musical set piece and that's i hate musicals but like i absolutely loved the musical portion of this movie i thought it was hysterical yeah and you say lsd you know, was not as funny as the the general open. I still thought those scenes were amazing as well. Yeah, no, I agree. They were still funny. It's just, I still think the the opening overture is still just, it is so over the top and ridiculous. But yeah, as, as, uh, LSD's performance is also fantastic. Uh. Yeah, his poem that he does when he's auditioning, <laughs> amazing. But yeah, you can absolutely tell... And, and I'm glad that Mel Brooks did not give up on making movies. You said this was a frustrating experience for him, and I can see that because 
filmmaking just takes forever compared to a lot of other mediums. But I, I'm not a big Mel Brooks fan, but I could tell that the passion that he had for the middle section of this movie translated into his other later movies, you know, in a in, in a more total way. Yeah, it's it's definitely you could tell this was a stepping stone. Knowing where his career goes, you can tell this was a stepping stone in this this was very much him starting to understand this very new process. Like, you know, it's, I still think it's interesting to hear that he essentially wrote this, not knowing if he wanted, and it actually became a Broadway play afterward. Like it, I think it's one Tony's like it's, it's widely accepted. Um, but it's one of those where like, he didn't know which direction he wanted to take it. And then on a whim just decided he was going to turn it into a movie instead of, of a play. And I'm like, I have to assume that there's more to it than that. Like, it's not that one-to-one, or even to that point, it's not that easy to just quickly be like, oh, no, we're just going to kind of, like, change a few things and bada-bing, bada-boom, look, now it's a movie. Like, there there had to be things where he wrote comfortably for the stage and then tried to retrofit it into a movie atmosphere. And like, And I think that's why there's parts of this movie that just don't succeed and don't work. The, the writing and the dialogue, they're not bad. And the, the jokes, a lot of them land, but a lot of it too, the performance and the way that it's shot, it's just, it's not, it's not a movie. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. It, it felt very, again, low budget and amateurish outside of the Springtime for Hitler play itself. I, I mean, I, I hate to compare it to this, but it's, I I tried watching the Hamilton on Disney Plus. They you know they put Hamilton on there, the recording of it. And I'm like, I got halfway through it. I'm like, yeah, this is fantastic. It's great. Like it's interesting to see what they did here. But I'm like, I don't enjoy watching this play shot like a movie where they try and do some of the panning with the camera. It's, like, it's not a movie. I don't want to watch this as a movie because it's I'm not getting the the atmosphere and it's not being portrayed the way that it should be. And it's just, it feels like a bastardization of the way that I'm supposed to experience this. And I, I feel like it's very similar to that in this movie. Like this wasn't necessarily intended to be a movie. It was just retrofitted into it so that Mel Brooks could kind of experiment with it. And on a whim decided to make it a movie instead. And because of that, like I would honestly be interested to see how this translates to the stage versus a movie, like to do a a one-to-one comparison of, of the two. Yeah, I think ultimately what you're saying is, as presented, you can see the seams. You mm-hmm. can see where a movie is stitched onto a play. Yep. And, and it's hard to not see that. And it, it, it retracts from the enjoyment. But again, that middle portion to me it, it is worth a watch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think that concludes five points for us this week. Uh, with that, do you want to jump into some chop shop? Absolutely. Alrighty, so this week on Chop Shop, I put or uh, I got horror, so I had to turn this this comedy musical into a horror movie. Travis, you'll have to forgive me. I can't remember what you got. What fate handed you? What did you get? Did you get block 
blockbuster or... i got block you got baby. blockbuster all right who do you want to kick off chop shop this week um i think for the audience's sake you should go second and i only say this because anytime you get horror you manage to do an amazing job you definitely create chicken salad out of chicken shit <laughs> Uh, I'm not as confident in mine, so I, I would prefer to lead off. So maybe you can give the audience something good to go out on. Ooh, okay, it's a, those are big shoes to fill. So I, ugh, I'm gonna say I don't know if I did it this week. We'll see. You know, uh, made it made. You know, okay, we'll just go with it. Let's do blockbuster. I'm 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 all ears. All right. Uh, so I got blockbuster. As usual, I go a little bit off the reservation with what I'm doing, but. <laughs> Some of the inspirations I have would be The Usual Suspects, Argo, uh, The Bourne franchise in general, and Apocalypse Now. Okay. All right. <clears throat> I'll uh, try to leave gaps in here uh, if you want to interject. Um, so my movie is going to open with Max... In a smoky interrogation room, he's under a literal spotlight. Uh, Max is in a prison jumpsuit, and he's being questioned by two unseen United States government agents regarding his possible involvement with the Nazi party and plans to further the movement. So, a little bit of context. This movie ends with uh, Max and Leo in prison. So mm -hmm. this is kind of picking up there. Uh, a sweaty, terrified Max tries to explain that this was simply a money-making scam. Uh, he recounts the plot of the film through his eyes. And we'll cut to the opening scene of the movie with Leo explaining the accounting scheme. Um, so basically, the opening of the movie will just be preceded by that interrogation scene. Okay. Uh, we cut back to the interrogation after seeing the opening of the movie with the unseen agents questioning Max about his knowledge of Leo Bloom. Max manically explains that Leo is just an accountant with the IRS uh, with massive anxiety issues. Uh, he carries a blanket, for Christ's sake. Uh, the unseen agents realize Max is unaware of any larger plans, uh, telling Max that Leo is not the man he appears to be. Uh, they begin to explain the true nature of the events depicted in the producers, and we cut to another flashback. In flashback, we'll cut to a long shot of Leo Bloom on a payphone outside of Max's apartment. Because one, one of the things I thought that was weird about the movie is the lack of setup for Leo Bloom. Mm -hmm. Like, So is he he's the personal accountant of Max? Is that the deal? I don't think... I don't think he's the personal account. I think he just works for the firm that does Max's accounting. And he is just essentially sent over to review Max's books. And in such, he is portrayed as just being kind of a meek, weak, kind of timid man who lacks any kind of spine or confidence. Gotcha. Okay, so he's technically an employee of Max, you would say. Yeah, yeah, I think you could say that. Okay. Well, regardless, 
Uh, we cut to the uh, long shot of Leo Bloom, and he's on a payphone outside of Max's apartment. As the camera zooms in, we begin to hear the conversation, but not clearly. Uh, we zoom in tighter, and the dialogue becomes clearer to the point we realize Leo Bloom is having a conversation in German. Ooh. We cut back to the interrogation. Max is stunned to learn that Leo Bloom is actually a Nazi agent. The accountant job is simply a cover. It's revealed through further flashbacks that springtime for Hitler was purposely inserted into the stack of plays by Leo. A panic Max yells at his interrogators, telling him that Max was moved to solitary confinement a week ago and they should go to go get him to question him. We'll cut to Max's point of view, looking across the table in the smoky interrogation room. Two men are seen in silhouette, backlit by the interrogation light. One of them speaks and says, Well, that's the problem, Mr. Bielstock. Leo Bloom escaped prison three days ago. As the line is delivered, one of the interrogators leans forward to reveal Lee Marvin. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I needed somebody from the era. Why not the man who made me love 60 Cinema, Lee Marvin? All right, I love it. <clears throat> so because this is a blockbuster, we're going to cut back to uh, a flashback of Leo's prison escape. Uh, to fit the blockbuster motif, think about Red Notice, the prison escape there. Uh, Leo is going to escape along with Franz, who is the uh, the playwright of Springtime for Hitler. We didn't mention him yet. Uh, and they're going to get help from a uh, German paramilitary group. He's, he so has, there's, there's a good action scene. All right, and he has to get ultimately get away on a U-boat because there's nothing more German or Nazi than, than sailing away on a U-boat. Yeah, there you go. This is a uh, a coastal prison along the eastern seaboard, and yeah, a U-boat awaits to carry them away. Um, so we're going to cut back to the interrogation. Lee Marvin's unnamed government agent will inform Max that they've arranged for him to be released early, uh, hoping that Leo will contact him about another scheme. Uh, a few weeks after Max is released, he is contacted by Franz, who reveals that Leo is in Argentina. I don't know if you know this, Brett. Historically, apparently Nazis fled to Argentina after the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's why it's Argentina. Uh, he reveals that Leo is in Argentina and would like Max to join him for further business ventures. And under the guise of being Leo's personal security, Lee Marvin joins Max on the flight to Rio de la Plata, which is at the mouth of the Uruguay River. <laughs> A local guide sent by Franz meets them, uh, offering his boat to take them up river where Leo and Franz await. Uh, before they can begin their journey, however, a local militia attempts to steal their supplies. Again, it's a blockbuster. I need a little bit of action in here. So we're going to get Lee Marvin. He's able to 
dispatch the small militia, but the guide is killed in the firefight. So now it's just Lee, Marvin, and Max. And uh, they take the boat and they begin their journey upriver. Uh, as they proceed, they pass several instances of crude paintings on walls uh, depicting what appears to be Leo Bloom. All right. Max and uh, Lee are puzzled, and the journey continues for several days when the boat reaches a man-made dam. Max looks at the map confused, as they're still several miles from the destination, but the duo decide to try to proceed on foot. But before they can set out, a tribe of diminutive natives, armed with bows and arrows, emerge from the jungle en masse. Their bodies appearing covered in the uh, orange clay of the riverbank. Outnumbered ten to one, the pair reluctantly surrender. Both men are tied up and then led into the jungle. After a short journey, the tribe arrives at Leo's base camp, and it is revealed that along with Leo and Franz, the base camp is home to Hitler himself, not having actually died in World War II. He reveals that Leo Bloom has been working with, with him since the early 50s, using his accounting schemes to rebuild Nazi wealth. He explains that Max and Leo's scheme was by far the most lucrative and wants them to continue their grift in various cities in South America. Uh, I'm running a little bit long here, so we're going to yeah, 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 yada, 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 some shit, but... Lee Marvin devises a plan to get close to Hitler to kill him and his henchmen, knowing that Hitler cannot continue to amass wealth and resources. Lee Marvin and Max work on rigging the village with dynamite, but are caught by Leo before they can light the fuse. Leo brings Max and Lee before Hitler, that's Lee Marvin, uh, revealing their duplicity. Hitler intends to torture them, but before he can give the command, a loud explosion is heard as the uh, the little diminutive natives from the river are destroying remaining Nazi equipment and the barracks containing Franz and the stormtroopers. An enraged Hitler yells at Leo, stating that he thought the little orange men worked for him. So Hitler's saying, hey, Leo, I thought you had control of these people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leo replies, they do, as he pulls out a German Luger and shoots Hitler in the forehead. <sighs> Max and Lee Marvin are grateful yet confused, and Leo reveals that he is a double agent under the employ of MI6 who knew Hitler was alive the whole time. <laughs> the accounting schemes were a way to gain trust until finally he could meet Hitler in person. Max asks Leo what he's going to do next, and Leo informs him that he and his little orange friends are headed to London, as MI6 has gotten word that a Nazi named Slugworth is using a candy business to launder Nazi gold. <laughs> Roll credits. Oh, that's beautiful. I was not expecting that. Yeah, so I hope we uh, review Willy Wonka in the future because I've already got my uh, my prequel set up. Oh, I will gladly do Willy Wonka because at the risk of you shitting all over it, that's probably honestly one of my favorite movies. Um, definitely has one of my favorite songs of all time in it. But uh, the the only comment I was going to make, and I, I couldn't slip it in there, was when the guy dies 
um there has to be a scene earlier when they're they're being taken out where the guy talks to max about being selfless and taking care of the people who he cares about and something like that and then when the guy dies he has to give like max a picture of his family and like like something about like you have to tell them oh. why because there there has to be the arc from max where he winds up not being a selfish asshole by the end of it and that has to be like the the switching point for him when he realizes the guy dies you know trying to get them to the nazi stronghold oh god yeah that was the move and maybe the guide could have some involvement with the local tribe mm-hmm. a- aka the oompa loompas yeah and maybe yeah that motivates max to try to help save those people as well <laughs> beautiful god you really you did really wanted to tie in willy wonka the uh yeah that's beautiful God, you should have gone last. I'm not going to be able to top that. Fuck. I feel like I got set well, up. You set me up. You're the editor of this podcast, <laughs> so you can potentially turn it around. But, eh, you know. <sighs> and you know what? I have to give credit. Uh, Chris Reeves. Mm-hmm. He assisted in this particular endeavor. Uh, yeah, had a lot of assistance. So, uh, well. I'm still eager to hear what you have to say about the horror. I uh, really, really enjoyed what you did there. All right, so I got horror. Um, I'm going to say my inspiration was House of Wax, but honestly, it was just kind of the slasher genre in general. I know it's interesting. You're talking about the Paris Hilton classic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just really, again, just the slasher genre. I don't know why House of Wax is the one that came up to my mind. Um, and I was thinking about Get Out while I made it, but I honestly don't think you're going to find a lot of Get Out referenced in here um like i said it's, it's pretty heavy into the slasher territory um which again is an interesting way to try and do a chop shop but i you know i was a little over the supernatural horror um as much as i love it i, I wanted to dip my toes in a different pool so the movie opens with a wide shot of a large mansion with a man flattering a woman and her giggling in delight is the audio we can hear over it As we slowly pan through the dark halls of the mansion, we continue to hear the man showering the woman with praise, it becoming increasingly more suggestive as we grow closer and closer to a door left ajar with a light beaming out of it. We cut to match Max Bite. Was it Bialstock? Right? Bialstock? Yeah, that was perfect. Max Bialstock kissing an old woman's hand while they flirt in her bed, covered by an expensive comforter and a lavish master bedroom. Max tells the woman that he must leave. He has to get back to his production, but he'll return soon. As as he begins to leave, the woman reminds him to take the check, guaranteeing her a share in his latest masterpiece. Max says, but of course, how could I forget? And grabs the check and leaves. We cut to him getting into a car, looking at a planner with the names of other women, crossing um, out the widow he had just left. He looks up at the man driving the car and says, Mrs. Cartwright is next. The man driving being Leo Bloom. Cut to the opening credits. We'll just have kind of a a montage of old uh, production posters on a long dark halls covered in cobwebs. Uh, Just a clear indication of the prestigious prestigious past that he uh, is no longer a part of. um, And the amount of time that he's kind of been removed from it. After the credits, we find Max and Leo in their office. Leo says he can't keep cooking the books like this. Everything, Every time uh, he does it, it gets closer to him going to jail. Max assures him that this will be the last time he's working on his greatest production, a surefire flop. 
Leo tells Max that he has to get serious. He can't keep failing like this, but Max says that's exactly what he's going to do. Max says that if he's learned anything from the years, their years together, there's money to be made in failure. Max explains his idea to Leo, and Leo agrees that it's kind of genius. So in mine, I kind of like the idea that Max was always the mastermind behind it. He's just kind of an, an asshole. Like It wouldn't even have crossed Leo's mind because um, that's how kind of a, a virtuous person he is. He's just kind of gotten lumped in with Max. So I feel like that's a big change. Yeah. Max explains his idea. You know, Leo agrees it's kind of genius. Leo uh, makes an agreement with Max that he'll go along with his plan if this is the last time that he has to cook the books. Max agrees to the deal and Leo asks where they're going to find such a dud. Max explains that he's already found it. He shuffles through the stack of scripts and hands Leo springtime for Hitler. Max begins to explain the play and Leo is astounded by how terrible it is. But when Leo asks where it came from, Max dodges the question. Ula, their secretary, or receptionist, sorry, uh, walks in to inform Max that Roger Debris is here to see him. Leo says, um, isn't he, but before he can finish, Max blurts out our next worst best decision ever. The three men talk through the play with Roger thanking Max for the opportunity to direct another one of his plays. To be honest, after the last bomb, he never expected to hear from him again. Max assures him that the critics just didn't understand his genius and that he thinks that there's no one better to direct Springtime for Hitler. As the men continue to discuss their play, Ola tells Max that he has a call on line one. It's the writer. Max goes to, the, uh, to answer the phone and Roger encourages him to put the writer on speaker. Max thinks nothing of it and puts the writer on, uh, you know, over speaker. The writer begins to thank Max for the opportunity to tell the true story of Hitler. When Roger cuts in to says, right, the real story. And they all begin to laugh, or he begins to laugh obnoxiously, followed by Max and Leo. After they're done laughing, there's a long, awkward silence and the writer begins to talk again. He warns the men that his family will only accept perfection and a performance worthy of the Fuhrer. We jump eight months into the future with just a panning of a crowd booing and people shouting at a stage. The curtain falls and performing their performers, many in tears, begin to walk to the dressing room. Max and Leo are elated. They begin to brag to themselves at how terrible the play was. They mention that Roger was the perfect choice. His gaudy direction was a mess. They laugh about how the lead couldn't remember his lines and imp his improvised improvisation made Hitler look like a twat. They laugh about the conductor's inability to keep the band on pace and lastly that the set design was so poor that it actually began to fell, uh, fall apart and they couldn't possibly have another night even if they wanted to. At that moment, a shattery figure moves off screen and the producers are a bit surprised but brush it off. Most of the staff leave the theater, but the director, composer, lead, and set designer, and the writer stay back to have a post-mortem with the producers. The producers act as though they're devastated by the outcome, but uh, and that surely the show will be canceled, and there's nothing that they can do, that they will not get another night. The writer, furious, storms off and warns the remaining attendees that they will regret their failure. So, the rest of the movie will play out like a traditional slasher, um, the director will be walking through a wardrobe room where, like, as he's leaving, he'll decide to go through the wardrobe room um, where he will be hunted down with it, or through the garments. I'm thinking almost like a Predator 2 where we see like, you know, he's running through the garments almost like the, the meat factory. 
Yeah, the uh, warehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the garments, and he is killed. The next, uh, next, we'll see the lead actor get knocked out. Um, but then we won't know what happens to him after that. Um, it'll be unknown. Uh, the next we'll see, you know, interchange will probably have the producers kind of talking um, to different people. But later we'll have the conductor. We'll find Roger dressed in one of his gaudy outfits from the performance, strung up on the stage with his arms and legs broken into the shape of a swastika. Shocked in horror, he will begin to run backwards when he is tripped and falls into the orchestra pit where he will be impaled by a bunch of music stands that have been fashioned into a spike pit. As the set design, uh, the set designer will die when several of his set pieces collapse on him, and the lead will come back to the lead actor. Um, as his feet have been nailed to the ground and several nooses have been wrapped around his neck, a distorted voice will ask him to say his lines off, you know, off screen. And with each failure, one of the ropes, which is attached to the sandbags, you know, that are usually attached to like the the curtain. You see, whenever you see that behind, uh, you'll see a rope uh, cut and a sandbag will fall, pulling tightly or tighter and tighter on uh, on his neck until finally it strangles him. Uh, So essentially all of them die by virtue of the way the producers described how they were terrible. Um, The two producers are now being hunted and they come across the mangled bodies of the other members of the play. They end up cornered. Leo talks about his life before Max. We get a flashback to when they met and we establish why he started cooking the books. Um, Ultimately, you know, Max, it it will play out very much like the movie where Max will first try and bribe him, but he's a virtuous man, so he doesn't do it. So then he kind of curtails to his, you know, more sensible side or sensitive side and, and talks about how, you know, obviously... You know, this lavish, he has a terrible apartment. He doesn't have a lavish lifestyle. He's doing this for survival. And Leo is ultimately doing all of this to try and help Max get on his feet. Um, After that, you know, our flashback and kind of the moment where the two of them talk it through, uh, Max will try and and make a run for it to try and save Leo, but ultimately gets shot. As the writer approaches, or we realize it's the writer approaches Max to kill him, Leo leaps out and knocks him down long enough for the two to escape. Oh, I did. I missed a scene where they found uh, some of the writer's like weapons and stuff like that. So this next part isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. Um, as they run out of the room, Leo lights the dynamite that he found earlier when they were investigating and found, you know, a satchel of, of weapons that they couldn't understand, but lights the dynamite that he found and tosses into the room. After the explosion, it is assumed that the Nazi is dead. As the two leave the burning rubble of the theater, their, uh, con- our, uh, Ula comes out to comfort them. As she tends to their wounds, sirens can be heard in the distance. Ula looks at Max and Leo and asks, or, uh, and sees if they are okay. They, you know, they reply that they're fine. And then she asks about her cousin. Leo says, cousin? And Max looks at Leo before he can say anything. Ula says, yes, my cousin. He wrote the play. And the movie ends with a shocked and horrified look on Leo's face as Ula says, quick, let me get you somewhere safe. I gotta tell you, number one, in the first, like, minute of your your script, I was wondering if you were going to make Max the Grim Reaper. (laughs) Like, he's visiting these old women you know, getting what he can out of them. And then that signals their death. So I went on quite a roller coaster. 
But then the way you describe, especially, and I think it's appropriate, the person hanging on the stage and the sandbags falling. Number one, the sandbags are very appropriate, Brett, because you did a great job and you sandbagged me saying that you didn't. <laughs> but that whole middle section, and, and maybe I've just got it on the brain because a new one is about to be released, but I got big time scream vibes. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I think you absolutely pulled it off. Yep. So, yeah, I just I tried to turn it into a uh, a little bit of a slasher film. So, again, that's kind of why there's there's not a whole lot of meat after once we get to the whole like slasher part of it. Like, I don't think most slasher movies establish a lot of character development or anything. That's usually just where we watch people get killed. So that's I kind of went, you know, the quick route just to say how I wanted to kill them all. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. I think uh, I think we both did pretty swell jobs with our chop shops this week but that concludes that segment and anybody who listens to the show knows our next bit is blue book and this one's a bit of a doozy because i could not figure out what the fuck any of the information meant so (laughs) i will tell you the sticker value of this movie was nine hundred and forty one thousand dollars and that's 1967 dollars so i don't know what inflation was i thought about doing it and then got bogged down and couldn't figure anything out um do you want to go ahead and guess what this movie made u.s and canada box office box office like in the year it was released mm-hmm. i think oh, that's where God. my numbers start to get super skewed i you said it, it cost what nine hundred and forty nine hundred nine hundred forty one thousand estimated is what they were given. I I could not tell you. I'm going to say it, it broke even. I'll say it made nine hundred fifty thousand. So three thousand twenty or three hundred twenty eight thousand dollars is what it brought in U.S. and Canada. I'm sorry, it brought it brought home what three hundred twenty eight thousand, according to all the research. I I went to multiple sites to try and figure out what this movie made. It is. It grossed three hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars. Do you want to guess what it did worldwide? Uh, half a million. Three hundred and seventy-five thousand was its gross worldwide. And this is where I get very confused. All right, because in the research, I felt like apparently this movie did great in Sweden to the point I think it was Sweden to the point where like they renamed almost any Mel Brooks movie that came out. Well, I'm gonna get ahead of myself. We'll bring up Sweden uh, after tag and title. Um, but, uh, then I also got a number 1.6 million and it's from rentals and it's apparently theater rentals. So I could not figure out according to IMDB box office numbers and everything else, the, the gross worldwide of the original release, cause it's been released, re-released a couple times, you know, special edition, stuff like that. The original was 375 thousand dollars so it was about a third well a little over a third of the budget of the movie so blue book's a little fucked up this week i apologize everybody i just could not find none of it made sense because then it talks about how people love the movie and how successful it was overseas and i'm like it doesn't seem like it was successful overseas I know in Germany you know it was what? banned. I'm not going to hold it against you for not <laughs> being able to find, you know, 65-year-old data. 
Yeah, it is not the, the, those old. Like even I think when we did the professionals, like finding the the blue book values, are like it is that is not an easy task. So let's go ahead and get into tag and title. If you're if you're good, let's do it. All right. Uh, so this is another fun one where actually there was an alternate title. Do you want to guess what this movie's alternate title was? Uh, springtime for Hitler. It was in fact Springtime for Hitler. That was what Mel Brooks originally wanted to call it, but that was one of the the uh, when he finally got a uh, what is it studio that would actually make this movie. That was their their one thing is he had to change the name because they did not think people were going to go see a movie called Springtime for Hitler. So he changed it to the producers because he thought it was ironic because those two, the two protagonists are anything but producers. So the funny thing about Sweden, I believe it's Sweden. This movie was so popular in Sweden that they actually renamed many of Mel Brooks's movies Springtime 4X. So like... Young Frankenstein was actually renamed Springtime for Young Frankenstein instead of <laughs> Young Frankenstein. Or like, I forget what Blazing Saddles are, but like all of them, they, they renamed the movies Springtime for blank because of how successful this movie was. Which again is why Blue Book confused me because I'm like, those numbers don't tell me it was that successful. So it'd be Springtime for Blazing Saddles? Um, so let's, I'm trying to remember what they were. Let me see if I can find, if I have that conveniently located anywhere. Um, well, while you're looking that up, let me just say, it's incredible to think that it had only been like 22 years since Hitler died when this movie was made. Like mm -hmm. to think, you know, springtime for Osama bin Laden. I don't think that would be made today. Uh, no. Uh, okay, so I'm I'm almost at the part. <laughs> I heard the part where I can. I'll just try and trim some of this out. Um. So they originally wanted to try it, Brooks to change it to springtime for Mussolini, and he was like, absolutely not. And that's when he made it the producers. Wait, so they they were okay with springtime for Mussolini, but not for Hitler. Yeah, apparently Hitler is where they drew the line. So yeah, you can have Hitler's right-hand man, but not Hitler. Mm -hmm. That's offensive. So it was springtime for Hitler. Uh, it was So the Blazing Saddles was springtime for the sheriff. Young Frankenstein was springtime for Frankenstein. Um, silent movie was springtime for the silent movies. <laughs> High anxiety became springtime for the lunatics. History of the world part one was springtime for world history. Spaceballs was springtime for space. And life stinks was springtime for the slum. So yeah, in Sweden, they renamed all of his movies to start with springtime because of this movie. I have to imagine that was somewhat successful for, you know, Swedish movie theaters because they continue to do it. But I would think that would make for a very confused audience. Yeah, you would think that it's like a, the springtime verse, right? Like all of those are intertwined or something like that. Like Gene Wilder must be like his grandchild or something like that. Like Somehow they're all related. But no, they just decided that that's what they were going to do. 
Uh, well, Brett, at some point in the Hollywood Chop Shop, we, we're going to do a springtime trilogy. <laughs> I am totally down for that. So, with that said, are you ready for the second half of Tag and Title? Absolutely. Alrighty, Travis. In typical fashion, I am going to give you three taglines. One tagline is an official tagline for this movie. One tagline is for a tagline, or is for a movie I found adjacent. And the third tagline is created by yours truly. What I need you to do is find me a tagline for this movie. Are you ready? Hit me. Once again, the whole world laughs. Two wrongs don't make a third right. And Hollywood never faced a zanier zero hour. Um, The middle one is yours. Two wrongs don't make a third right. Yeah. I think that's you. Okay. I think the third one is the actual tagline. Hollywood never I, faced a zanier zero hour. Yeah, I okay. have to assume that maybe zero pastel was a was a draw at this point, at mm. least on some level. So that's why they took advantage of it and hit me with the first one again. Once again, the whole world laughs. I feel like that's generic enough where that could be any movie, so that's why I'm saying it might be an adjacent film. Final answer. All right. Congratulations, sir. You got all three this week. Um, I was Two Wrongs Don't Make a, th- a Third Reich. Uh, Hollywood Never Faced a Zanier Zero Hour is one of the taglines. I'm going to give you the second tagline for this movie. Um, and once again, The Whole World Laughs was for 1940s The Great Dictator. Never heard of it. Uh, it's a Charlie Pray Chaplin. God we don't review it. I doubt we will. It's one of. It, I mean, if we did, it would probably be a special edition. Uh, it was one of Charlie Chaplin's. It's one of his like big, big, big movies. Um, I wanted to give you a Jojo Rabbit tagline, but I didn't think it fit very well, and it would be. It would have been very easy to pick out. So it was the anti hate satire or an anti hate satire. I just didn't think that it fit this movie. And you would have picked that one out too easy. Yeah, I mean, to be frank, this movie is too hateful to have that tagline. Yep. So what I did want to give you was because we like to make fun of old taglines on the fact that they love to make them in a synopsis rather than a fucking tagline. The other tagline for this movie was, Once upon a time, there was a Broadway producer who met a creative but timid accountant. Together, they conducted the most outrageous $1 million scheme in the annals of showbiz. Yeah, no, obviously, again, the 60s and 70s were just all about giving you the whole movie in a quote-unquote tagline. Can you imagine, again, putting that on a fucking poster? I think that puts us into our next little segment here. Time capsule. Travis, do you have a time capsule yeah, for us this week? Yeah, I've got a very brief okay. one this week. Okay, okay. But... It was brought to my attention by one of our listeners. Uh, We're two-thirds of the way through the Hollywood Meta Trilogy. Mm -hmm. Last week, we reviewed Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Uh, This week is The Producers. Uh, 
there's actually a very easy common link between the two films. Brett, would you have guessed that? Mm, give me one second. I'm, no, don't go on the internet, Brett. I'm, I'm not. I'm going to assume that one of the ladies, as they were called, uh, appeared in both movies? Solid guess, but no. Okay. So last week we reviewed Mulholland Drive, direct, directed by David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week we reviewed the producers, directed by Mel Brooks. Ah, well, they're both men. In 1980, I'm sorry? They're both men. You nailed it, Brett. Let's, Fucking uh, yeah. Let's hit All the right. outro. I <laughs> know. Uh, in 1980, David Lynch directed a film called The Elephant Man. Are you familiar with it at all? Uh, I am fa- I've not seen it, but I am familiar with it. Same here. Uh, one of the executive producers on that film, Mel Brooks. Uh, but he did not want to appear on any promotional material. He basically did not want to be credited because everyone felt that having Mel Brooks attached in any sort of way would signal to the audience that this might be a lighthearted or a Mm. comedy kind of romp, which uh, David Lynch, not synonymous with. What are you talking about? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, Blue Blue Velvet is just a laugh riot. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, But yeah, Mel Brooks technically collaborated with David Lynch on The Elephant Man in 1980. I'll be damned. Alrighty, so here's the question I have for you, Travis, as we're wrapping up here. Uh, Actually, let's do final assessments, and then after we do final assessments, we'll talk about the poll. Alright, so at the end of the day, Travis, what what are your thoughts about 1967's The Producers? Do you watch it? Do you pass? Do you own it? Do you stream it? Do you you tubes your favorite parts? What what are you going to do here? I'll uh, I'll never watch this again. I don't think I'll even watch. As funny as I thought the springtime for Hitler stuff was, I don't know when I'm ever in the mood to seek that kind of material out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, if I'm honest, a fan of Mel Brooks in general. Mm -hmm. Um, This probably will not be our last Mel Brooks review. Um, but I'm always going to come into Mel Brooks movies with a lower opinion because I just I've never enjoyed his brand of comedy. And as we discussed in the review, everything outside of Springtime for Hitler is rough. You can tell that he was really cutting his teeth as a director in 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 film. So, yeah, this is a unless you're a Mel Brooks fan or I guess a, a big time zero pastel fan in the way that he performs, I, I would skip this. Cause even if you're a Gene Wilder fan, I've seen Gene Wilder numerous times in other movies where I enjoyed him much more. Yeah. Fair enough. What about you? Uh, I think if you're on the fence about this and you don't necessarily need to watch it, I enjoyed it. I definitely think it's a, a rougher cut movie. So you have to, I think be in the mood to, to watch it knowing that it's going to have some substantial flaws I would definitely, if you don't want to watch the movie, take the time to to look up the the overture and the the actual play Springtime for Hitler because I think it is absolutely hysterical. Um, I do love Gene Wilder, and I would have to imagine that with this being Mel Brooks's first film, that this is what kind of built their relationship. Um, 
like I said, huge Gene Waller, and he appears in a ton, a ton of Mel Brooks's material. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I This is going to be one of those, like, I'm kind of lukewarm in the middle of. I think you could watch it and enjoy it. I think if you want to skip it, it's... I don't think it has a huge lasting impact on on culture as a whole. I don't know of a lot of references that are made to it, so I don't know if it's you need to watch it from a, you know, pop culture significance, but I think it's I think it's worth it. I mean, it was they tried to to remake it, um which I think that I think 2005 they tried to to remake it and it fell pretty flat, which I would imagine, you know, it would. Matthew Broderick I think played Leo Bloom. Yeah, Nathan Lane was Max. Mm-hmm. So, which is another one of those, I believe Nathan Lane does a lot of theater. So it's another one of those where let's take a theater guy and put him in a move, which, you know, Nathan Lane is actually a decent actor. So not to say that Zero wasn't, but I can guarantee you that Nathan Lane probably did a better job at that transition than I think Zero did. And a lot of that might have been the direction that Mel Brooks was giving. So... For our third movie, we did something different with this trilogy. We wanted to give the audience an opportunity. Uh, we put four movies that revolved around the entertainment industry um, out there in a poll. My question is, do we want to give people an opportunity to continue voting after this episode and close it out on Tuesday, January 18th? Or do we want to say the poll is closed and take the results now? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you who won, but I'm telling you right now, it's not It's not close. If it's not close, I think we should go ahead and make the announcement now because I, you know. All right. I don't think we have a large enough audience to really sway it after right. we listen to this. So I'm not. I know what you voted for, Travis, and I know what I voted for. Uh, excuse me. Voting is a very private matter. I'm not sure why you know what I voted for. Uh, I mean, I never said it was anonymous. We actually asked for people's emails. So uh, we can go ahead and put that out there. But I'm going to tell you that neither of us were able to sway our friends because we did not get the movies that either of us chose. You wanted, Well, what did you choose? I wanted to do Hail Caesar. You put okay, Once Upon a Time. And I think I wanted Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You wanted Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, so we had one for Hail Caesar, we had two for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we had six votes for the player. <laughs> uh, uh, so apparently the audience is, they, they, are, they have a very clear opinion of what we should review next. Um, so it will be 1992's The Player. I... I don't know if this is fit for the podcast. Maybe you should cut it out, but I know like three people who voted for the player. I don't know where the other three are coming from. Uh, I know one of the people that voted for the player because they put their email address in and wanted a shot at that free t-shirt. Um, I don't know who the other people are, but yes, we have, we have six, six votes for the player. Okay. So that's what we're that's what we're going to be reviewing. Well, hey, if you're listening, the other three voters, you didn't necessarily pick the movie I wanted, but I appreciate your engagement. I don't know why you didn't want a T-shirt though. Yeah, I uh, I am actually as much as I wanted to do Hail Caesar, 
Um, I mean, we'll have an opportunity to do a Coen Brothers movie. I the player was the only one I hadn't seen, so we'll actually. I don't know about you, but it'll be a fresh movie for me. Either. Yep. So, I uh, I look forward to that. Uh, I think that pretty much closes out any housekeeping we have. So, hopefully, we will see you next week for the player. Um, again, it is what you asked for, so it'd be a real shame if you didn't come back. <laughs> um, and then we will have a wrap-up show for this trilogy after that, and then you know we'll uh, we'll give you a little tease next week for what the next trilogy is. Love y'all. See you next week. I'm hysterical. I'm in hysterics. I'm wet, and I'm hysterical. I almost started off just with the skit. Totally forgot that I have a whole opening bit. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering what the delay was. Uh, Yeah, I was about to knock on my microphone. (laughs) Produce it with unimaginably bad... Produce it with unimaginably bad talent and reap in the reward... Reap the rewards of closing... (sighs) I'm just going to... Yep. Sorry. Uh, Sorry.